You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As Dale said, we're starting a, a new three-part uh, message series today about the gospel. Now, our goal this year as a church is to take steps, uh, next steps, towards sharing the gospel with the people that God puts in our path. In order for that to happen, we need to first be clear on exactly what the gospel is. Now, the word gospel comes from a Greek word in the New Testament that means good news. So that's what the gospel is. It's simply good news. In particular, it's the good news about how Jesus came into this world to forgive us of our sins. Now, the Bible claims that this is the best news that any of us could ever hear and respond to. But what would happen if you turned to, say, a coworker tomorrow morning or a neighbor and you said, hey, I've got some great news And as they leaned in, you shared with them the good news about Jesus Christ. What would the response be? Well, the responses would vary. My guess is, for the most part, you'd be met with awkward silence and blank stares. Maybe something more negative than that, but probably that. Very different if you said, hey, I've got some good news. I just heard over the weekend that our whole department is getting a 10% raise. What would the response be to that? Well, that would be a very different response. That would be an excited response. So why is the good news of Jesus often not met with good news level response, good news level enthusiasm? Well, I think it's because the good news of Jesus is preceded, and it only makes sense if it's preceded by the bad and increasingly unpopular news of our predicament, our sin. And if a person is unwilling to accept that bad news, well, then the gospel, which is the answer to that bad news, is neutral at best, maybe irritating. It's not good news. People are in search of good news in a world full of so much bad news. Everyone is looking for some good news. And the search is on not just for temporary good news, like a 10% raise that will be helpful for a while and then we need another raise. We're not looking just for the temporary kind of good news. Everyone is really longing for and looking for and trying to find the more permanent effects of true and lasting good news. Many of you know that my wife and I spent a couple of weeks at a hospital in uh, Denver for some treatment for a lung condition for her this month, and there was a giant banner that hung on the outside of the building that we would go to every day, and it had the two words on it, we hope. We hope. Now, hope is one of those effects of good news. I mean, good news, true good news, gives you a brighter outlook on the future. It gives you hope. So what good news do you think might have prompted a giant three-story banner that says, we hope? Well, it, it didn't say. And as I looked into it, I really couldn't figure out why we hope. Just we hope was the big giant banner. Now, it was a hospital, and We were going there, hopefully get some treatment, but what if the treatment plans hadn't worked out, or what if there's other medical problems? Well, then that hope is short-lived. We all want hope, but without a solid, rational reason for hope, hope is just a sentiment. It's a feeling that we're pursuing without an anchor, without a reason. It's an effect without a corresponding cause. It is the icing without the cake. I watched my granddaughter tackle a cupcake last week in this manner. She grabbed the cupcake, cupcake, picked it out, primarily because of the color of the sprinkles, I think, and then she proceeded to eat all of the icing, licked all of the icing, set the cupcake down, and said she was done. (laughs) 
And she didn't want any more. She'd been, all she wanted was the icing on the cake. In a sense, that's kind of the way our culture is right now. We, we want the icing. We want the good feelings. But, but we don't want the stuff that supports and the icing sits on. We want the effects of the gospel. But we don't want the gospel. The gospel is the one thing that gives us reason to hope, a reason that cannot be shaken. Even if a hospital treatment plan doesn't work or something else tragic happens, Because the gospel promises us eternal life. That's a hope that's anchored beyond the circumstances of this life. It gives us a reason for hope that cannot be budged. It is the cake on which the icing of hope sits. But hope isn't the only gospel icing. Love is another effect of the gospel. I think everybody knows that we're supposed to love each other. The big question, though, is why? Nobody really knows why other than, well, you're just supposed to. Well, there's some people that don't think they're supposed to, and they keep messing up on this whole experience. And the challenge is, if you don't have a reason deeper than I'm just supposed to, when love gets really hard, you're not going to love anymore. This is where we are right now as a culture. We, we know that we should love, but it's just like the icing. And so love kind of takes on this sweet, icing kind of quality that's mostly sentiment, mostly emotion. It lacks the substance to handle the real-world challenges that love always faces. The gospel tells us why we should love. The reason we should love is because God loved us so much that he sacrificed for us. Here's what we read in 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. That's another problem. When you get to icing-only definitions, it's hard to even know, well, so what do you mean by love? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Okay, now, I have a reason, and you have a reason, to love when love gets challenging. You have a reason to sacrifice when that's what love often demands. Because if God took on a body and sacrificed himself for me, then I certainly can step up and sacrifice to love this person and to love that person. There's a reason now. But as I said, our culture has rejected the cake of the gospel, and it's now trying to live off of the icing, the emotions. But if you live off of icing, what happens? You don't feel very good. You know, the good feelings that occur when the icing's in your mouth, don't linger when it actually makes it into your body and your body starts to react to it. You end up feeling worse. And that's what's happening to our society. We're living on the icing. We're we're trying to hope and we're trying to love and all kinds of other things. We're, We're trying to get through this together and we're not getting through this together. We're trying to do the things that the gospel can help us do without the gospel. And so we're feeling worse as a society. The rising mental health care crisis is just one of the many indicators that we're not doing really well on the inside. And for all the slogans about hope and love and the other big slogans, what we desperately need is the gospel, the good news. I believe, especially in this season of time, people are hungry for the real thing for the gospel. They may not know it, 
but it's what they're looking for. And so on the next three Sundays, we're going to consider the three main ingredients that make up the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three important things that we all need to understand if we're going to share this with the people that God puts in our life. We're going to consider first the bad news, that's today, then the good news next Sunday, and then the response. All three of these gospel elements are summarized in one verse, Romans 6, 23. We're going to memorize this verse together. You probably saw the cards that are on your seats, so go ahead and take these cards out. This is the verse that we're going to memorize together. If you want a digital version of this uh, to have with you, you can just scan the QR code here, and that'll get you the digital version. So we've made these verse cards to help you memorize this over the next three weeks. And on the front side, or whatever the front side is, the darker side is the verse itself for the wages of sin. We're going to read through this in just a little bit. On the back side, you'll find the first letter to each word. This is a memory tool, so you can kind of test your memory as you're going along and try to work through memorizing this verse in the next three weeks. Again, as I said, if you want a digital version of this, just scan that QR code. So go ahead and take the card out. So we're going to say this verse together as we get started this morning. So let's do this, Romans 6.23. So read this together with me. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the three parts of the gospel contained in this one verse. For the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. Our Lord is the critical decision that determines whether the good news becomes good news to us, whether we decide Jesus is going to be our Lord and we follow him or, or not. That's the response. Today we start with the bad news, sin. We all feel the effects of sin. Even if someone isn't willing to admit that they sin, they feel the effects. We cannot get away from the emotion of sin. Three different times, Jesus paused when he was here on earth to address what sin feels like. We're going to look at these three scenes this morning to get a better understanding of the bad news that must be understood before the good news is accepted. Effect number one is this. We feel sad because sin causes death. The first phrase in the verse that we're memorizing, that we just said, is the wages of sin is death. And we know what it's like to work for a wage. You know, if you work for a wage, you earn that wage one day at a time. Maybe if you're hourly, one hour at a time. And then after you've worked for a week, or maybe two weeks, or maybe a month, then the payday arrives, and you get what you've already earned. The accounts are settled. And this is what it's saying. This is the way sin works as well. It earns us a wage. And it demands that accounts must be settled. But here's the challenge. We sin today, and what happens? Most likely nothing. We sin tomorrow. Same thing. We sin all week, and we sin all month, and we sin for years. And in some areas, it seems like it doesn't really matter. But eventually, in a day of God's choosing, the payday arrives. And we then receive what we've been earning, sin by sin, over time. 
And what sin does is sin kills everything it touches. It destroys it. Sin will kill a marriage. It'll kill friendships. Sin will destroy your finances. It will dash your dreams. And then in the end, sin kills us, takes our very life. And the emotion of this sin, of this death, is sadness. Funerals are marked by tears. Whenever we do a funeral here at Seabreeze, we have boxes of Kleenexes that we get out because they are sad moments. Death is a very sad experience. And so as sin kills off the good things in our life, it leaves in its wake a flood of tears. Our world is in pain. Many people, either silently on the inside or maybe on the outside, as they go to sleep tonight, lay their heads on their pillows, they will cry themselves to sleep because of the sin in their life and the sin in other people's lives. What sin does is it gives short-term pleasure in exchange for long-term sadness. So what are we to do with the sadness that we all struggle with because we all sin? In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of two men who approach God. One, it seems, is feeling pretty good about himself. The other, devastated, overwhelmed with sadness. Here's what Jesus says about these two. This is in Luke 18, 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, they didn't want to talk about their sin. They looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable, this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like this, like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, before everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So two individuals handling their sin very differently. The truth is, both of these men had plenty to feel sad about. The Pharisee wasn't acting like it, but doesn't it seem like the Pharisee's being a little defensive here? I mean, whenever someone starts listing off to you all of the good things they're doing, you realize, so you're feeling pretty bad about yourself. You're, you're listing all, why are, you, why are we talking about all the great things you're doing? Because you're feeling guilty, you're feeling bad, you're feeling sad. When I was in Denver, I got in a conversation with a guy one day. We were just chatting and having, you know, a basic conversation. And then he said something that I often dread, and he said, so what do you do for work? And I know that's when the conversation always changes. When he found out I was a pastor, it was almost as if he pushed play, and another voice and another person started talking. <laughs> He'd been, you know, dropping some words before, and the, but this person had everything cleaned up, language-wise. And he, um, he started talking about a church that he used to go to, my guess is 10 years ago? He didn't go to church now, 
But he did go to a church for a while, and he did some stuff there, and he started listing all of these things that he had done at that church. And it was just, why are we talking about this? We, we weren't talking about anything like this before. But I know why, because I've experienced this. You know, like all of us, he feels bad about his sin. And given the chance, he wants to defend himself. So for some strange reason, whenever people run into a pastor, it gives them an opportunity to practice what they might say, I guess, before God. And so they do. They kind of get, <clears throat> you know, nervous, and it's almost as if they're taking the witness stand, and they get a little awkward, and I keep saying, oh, no, it's fine, it's fine. He dropped a, a word, and oh, sorry, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. As if, you know, God in heaven couldn't hear anything he's been saying up to this point, you know. But I show up, and now God's saying, oh, what's that guy saying? It's, it's very weird. So he was presenting his defense. But the point that Jesus is making in this parable is that there is no defense for our sin. So you went to church 10 years ago and did some things. Great. That's not an answer. Our only hope is to plead guilty, just to be honest. You see, what we don't realize, and what Jesus is saying in the story, is the heart of God is drawn to those who are devastated over their sin, who are honest about their past sin. And he's not drawn to those who are trying to act like they're amazing when they're just sinful people like we all are. It's when we allow ourselves to feel the full weight of our guilt that we stop being defensive. It's then that the help of heaven becomes available and the gospel becomes good news and forgiveness is offered. But the problem is we don't like to feel sad. None of us do. And so many, like this Pharisee, try to address the feelings of sadness resulting from their sin by finding someone who's worse than them. We always do this. I'm feeling bad about myself. Let's find someone that I can look down on so I can feel better about myself. And that's what this Pharisee did. But there are a few who decide to bow in the presence of God and they try to look up. They beg for mercy. And they're the ones, Jesus says, that find it. Jesus summarizes it by saying, it's the exalted the ones who exalt themselves, they're going to be humbled. But it's the one who humbles themselves. They admit the truth. They're going to find hope and they're going to be raised up. They're going to be exalted. It turns out that sad is a necessary emotion and an important step towards humility. But in our culture, we have the means and the opportunity to purchase one good feeling after another. So we often run away from the emotion of sadness the emotion that has the chance to guide us home. So, let me ask you a personal question. Do you feel sad? If you do, good. I'm not glad that you feel sad, but it's good that you feel sad. In the dark of your sadness, you are hearing the invitation of God. And he's inviting you to say the words, maybe for the first time, or like for me, the, I don't know, 1,438th time, God have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Feeling sad can be a good thing. Now, I know you can get stuck in sadness if you don't turn to God. That's not good. But being sad itself is often the opportunity for a moment of clarity that points us to the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. So let me ask you another question. Does someone you know feel sad? It's a critical moment for them. They can turn into darkness and get swallowed by that hole, or they can turn to the gospel and find the good news. So pray for them. If there's a way you can help them, help them. Effect number two of sin is we feel lost because sin isolates us. In Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus describes the reason he came to earth. The reason he took on a body and came to earth. This is what he said. This is his mission. For the Son of Man, that's the term that he would often use to describe himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's his mission. That's who the good news is for, people who are lost. Well, let me ask you this. Do the people of this community appear lost to you? Uh, Some do. But my neighbors... They don't look lost. I don't see them standing out in front of their house going, what are we supposed to do next? I mean, they're moving like I'm moving. They're going somewhere. They have a plan. And it was the same in Jesus' day. Most people are busy doing something, heading somewhere. But Jesus had a knack for seeing what was really going on at a deeper level. So again and again, he would notice someone that no one else noticed. And he would pause, and he would have a conversation with them about what was going on inside. And that's exactly what happened in the scene that preceded this statement that Jesus made about him coming to seek and to save the lost. In this case, the person he noticed was a a wealthy man by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus caught the eye of Jesus. And this was surprising that Zacchaeus was the lost person that Jesus was seeking attempting to find. Because the wealthy almost never look lost, do they? I mean, they have found what most people are looking for. And we don't get any indication that they really are lost until some of them meet a tragic end. And we discover how sad and how lost they have been for years. But we tend to think, well, they're not lost. People who have a lot of money, they're not lost. They've, they've found what most of us are looking for. But the money and the drive to get the money often hides the truth that behind the scramble, behind the resources, on the inside, they're lost. They don't know how to find what they're looking for. Luke 19, 1 through 4, the story begins this way. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So his plan wasn't to stay. He was on his way somewhere, like we all are. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. We're going to look at this phrase. I think it's very helpful. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So the crowd, we are told, is why Zacchaeus ended up in a tree. 
But I suspect that this was not the first time in Zacchaeus' life that he'd made a decision, as it says, because of the crowd. Makes sense that day. He's short, couldn't see, had to find a vantage point, climbed, climbed that tree, because of the crowd. But my guess is the crowd had been directing Zacchaeus' life for some time now. I'm not sure, but I think there are two reasons why this was the case for him. First was he was a tax collector, and the second reason is he was short. First of all, why was he a tax collector? I mean, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, I wanted to be a lawyer. I watched a few lawyer shows, and I thought, man, that would be so fun to win an argument. <laughs> so I wanted to be a lawyer. Maybe you wanted to play professional sports or work in law enforcement or be a firefighter or work in the medical field. Did any of you have the dream of growing up to work for the IRS? <laughs> now, if you do, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I haven't yet met anyone. If, if, you, if that was your big dream, I would love to meet you. I haven't met anyone yet like that. Why not? Well, let's be honest, nobody likes a tax collector, right? I mean, you get fired. I mean, we're getting ready to put taxes together. Is, is that a motivating thing for you? And so then to be doing that your whole life, checking out, and, you know, that's, nobody likes tax collectors. Now, the bad image of tax collectors is unfair in our day. It is a noble job. It is needed. It is good. But the bad image of a tax collector was well-deserved in Jesus' day because of the way they had to go about it. They made enemies of everyone. So the question is, why would Zacchaeus enter a profession that would create such hatred and isolation for him in the crowd? Well, I think this leads to the second thing that you notice about Zacchaeus. Is it says that he was a short man. Now, for this to be a major part of the story, it's likely that he wasn't just a few inches shorter than average. He was probably really short a lot shorter. And my guess is, just knowing the way crowds are, the crowd had not been kind to Zacchaeus growing up because of his stature. And maybe Zacchaeus had decided, out of the years of being treated badly, that he was going to show everybody. He was going to become a big man in the only way he knew how, and that was make a lot of money. You see, sin is a relationship killer. It separates us from God, and then it separates us from each other. And we do not do well in isolation. COVID has made that very, very clear. So we are all constantly trying to find our place, where we belong, where we're not isolated. Now, we are created ultimately to find our place in our relationship with God. That's where we belong at the deepest level. And so, without God, because of our sin, we look for a God-sized place to belong replacement. That's what the crowd offers to us. You know, after God, the crowd made up of people made in His image is the next biggest thing we can belong to. If we can't find our place in a relationship with God, then the next best thing is to find our place in the crowd. But the crowd is a poor source of direction. 
You know, the crowd seems to know where it's going because there's so many people. But a crowd is just a large collection of lost people. It doesn't know. And the truth is that while we might care about what the crowd thinks about us, the crowd could care less about us. You know, if you use the crowd to find your place and to give you direction and you build your marriage on the collective wisdom of the crowd of your day, the crowd will not be there when your marriage falls apart. The crowd won't even notice. If you raise your kids by what's popular, the crowd won't even notice when your child cries at night, when your child is destroying their life and bringing grief to your heart. The crowd has moved on. The crowd doesn't care. The only one who cares is Jesus Christ, really. And that's why in verse 5, the next verse, we read this. When Jesus reached that spot under that tree, he stopped. He looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Jesus is searching for people who are lost in the crowd because of the crowd, who are being trampled by the crowd, who are living their lives for the crowd and are experiencing the grief of that. And he goes to the spot where people are and he says, hey, why don't you come down? Would you invite me to your house so that I can be a part of your life and you can now find home, you can belong? That's good news. Effect number three is this. The third effect of sin is we feel empty because sin lies. It lies to us. You know, I said earlier, sin promises pleasure, but it ends up delivering long-term sadness. Sin also promises satisfaction but it delivers emptiness. It was noon, the hottest part of the day, when Jesus and his disciples showed up at a small town in, just outside of Israel in Samaria. They'd been walking in the heat of the day. Jesus was so tired and hungry that he stayed at the well, which is always on the outskirts of the towns, so that he could sit down and rest while his disciples went into the food to try to find, or the town rather, to try to find some food. And as he sat there, observing people coming and going from this well, drawing water from the well, there was again one person who caught his eye. It was a Samaritan woman. So Jesus went up to her and asked her for water. And that got into a conversation about water and then living water. Turns out that she, like, well, every person who's ever walked this earth, was thirsty. Not just physically thirsty, but deep on the inside, thirsty, empty. There was this nagging emptiness inside that she just didn't know how to quench. So she kept looking for something that would quench that. And for her, she kept looking for love in the arms of another man. She had gone through five divorces was now trying to fill the emptiness in the arms of man number six. Jesus knew this, but he did not condemn her for her sin. He talked about what was really going on behind all of the sin. And he offered to grant her living water, 
that would become like a spring inside of her that would overflow and not only fill her on the inside, but leave her in a position where she could be a real blessing to other people. Here's what we read in John 4, verses 10 and then 13 through 14. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verses 13 through 14. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, Jesus says, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, she knew that she was thirsty on the inside. But what she didn't know was how to quench it. This internal thirst that everyone has drives people to do, ingest, drink almost anything that promises to quench that thirst. But like Jesus said to this woman, it's just like regular water. You're going to be thirsty again. It's not going to meet the need. Man number six will not quench your thirst. And he says, if you only knew who I was and what I'm offering you would see the good news and you would ask for living water. But she didn't know at that point. Eventually she did, and it looks like she did ask for living water. She didn't know the one standing before her was the gift that would fill her empty heart. That's why she kept doing the same wrong things over and over and over again. She didn't know how to quench this deep thirst. And she is not alone on this. Emptiness is everywhere. Everyone we see is drinking something to quench this thirst. They all have their beverage of choice. But they're all still empty on the inside. Now, kind of like the lost condition, they don't look empty just like they don't look lost. This woman didn't look empty. The only way that we'll ever get beyond the surface in a conversation with a person to talk about this deeper emptiness is if we do what Jesus did. We take the time and the energy and take an interest in someone's life and strike up a conversation. And like Jesus, it'll probably come in a moment when we're tired and it's the last thing we want to do. So what amazing conversation starter that did Jesus use to strike up this conversation that led to living water all Jesus said was can I have some water the decision that I've found isn't so much what do I say to this person but do I say anything do I take an interest at all do I strike up any kind of a conversation to see where it might go that's the critical moment of decision Will I reach out and take an interest, or will I just observe and then move on with my day? This isn't just a, a story about living water. This is also Jesus showing us what we need to do in moments like this. The disciples return to find Jesus talking with this woman, and they offer him food. Listen carefully to what Jesus says to them and, by extension, to us now. Verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
Do you not say four months more and then they harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for harvest. So they offer him food because he's hungry. I mean, food is something our bodies need regularly. Jesus took on a body. He was hungry. But there will be one day when food will no longer be a need or an interest to us. And that'll be the day we die. And that day will also mark the time when we will no longer be able to help someone like this woman find God's gift. So what Jesus is saying here, so guys, yeah, I'm hungry, I'll get to the food, but right now, my food is to do why I'm here, to carry on the mission, the whole reason I'm here. There'll be a a time when we can eat food, but right now, this is a window of opportunity. And he he compares it to harvest time. You know, whenever a farmer harvests, the, the few days of harvest are the most critical moment of the year. All of the work and all of the money and all of the plowing and all of the investing hang on that window of opportunity. And on those few days, farmers don't get much sleep. They don't necessarily eat the best stuff. They don't watch a lot of TV. They don't go on vacation because they need to bring the harvest in. This is a window of opportunity. That's what Jesus is saying. This is big. I think Jesus would say to us, look around. There are people like this woman everywhere in Huntington Beach. This is harvest time. There is a window of opportunity that we all have. There are people like this woman who are just one conversation away from knowing the gift of the gospel. Jesus would say, just take the time. Lift up your head. Strike up a conversation and see where it might be going. One of the things, as I've been working on this this fall and now, is I realized I I just move so fast from one thing to the next that I don't notice people as much as I should, like Jesus did. That's a step for me to take and a step I invite you to take is to look up, open your eyes, and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Let's pray together. Jesus, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see the opportunities that are around us. We know we live in a time when people are unwilling in large part, to accept the bad news. But the truth is, they are living with the emotions of the bad news. They are sad. They are lost. And they are empty on the inside. So God, I pray that you would give us people to pray for, people to talk to, encourage just to do what Jesus did, just strike up a conversation and Talk about how we've found the answer to what we all feel. In this season of time when it seems like the bad news is everywhere, pray that you would give us confidence in the one piece of good news that is the answer to all the bad news, the gospel. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. 
Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.